Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 29. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we are absolutely dependent upon you for everything, and this morning we cry out to you and look to you and ask that you would be merciful to us. Speak your word to us. Look upon us as your people and pity us. For Father, you know that apart from you, we can't understand and we will, we will not even see ourselves clearly. We won't see you clearly. So please, meet us this morning and work in us powerfully and help us in every way because we're desperate. We need you. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, let's read the text, Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You know, as I have been studying and meditating and dwelling on this particular text this week, it has been incredibly painful to wrestle with, because it exposes in us things that uh, we don't like to see all the time. And I realize that, and as as you look at this, we don't even realize how selfish we are. We're so often, we're so blinded to ourselves. And how easy it is for me to deceive myself, to tell myself, think think I'm really good, I've really got it going on, and then I read something like this and it just kicks me all over the block. Because here's the thing, when it comes to loving like this, it isn't something I find in myself, and especially in my flesh, something that I can do. I find it beyond myself, and in fact, I, I, I find myself wanting to actually push the truth away and make excuse or justify or, or, or water it down to somehow take away the punch that it has for us. So when Jesus gives us a clear expression here of what love is like in the details, especially toward our enemies and those who don't like us, it really ought to humble us and break us. Last week, I looked at the first part of this passage and then stepped back to look at the broader implications of what Jesus is really trying to do here. And this morning, we're going to look at the details of of what he would mentioned here. And then once again at the end, we're going to seek to, to see the glory of Jesus in all this and the gospel in the midst of it and pull back and help us to understand how is it that we 
do this given who we are. So to begin with, Jesus says in verse 29, to the one who strikes you, offer the other also. Jesus is saying this in a context when Israel had been applying the law in the wrong direction completely. They knew that the law said that justice demands, what does justice demand? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the summary of justice. If you want to know what justice is all about, how do you determine justice? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And they knew that. But the point was to summarize justice and express how judgment was to be made by those who were called to judge. So what Jesus was doing was showing them how the law was to be applied from a personal perspective. How do we personally apply the law? It is how you or I are to respond to someone when they strike us personally. He wasn't telling judges how they were to judge a case. So that, oh, okay, so when a case comes in and we find out, so you struck them on the cheek. Okay, you who got struck on the cheek, did you turn the other one? No, guilty. You did not turn the other cheek. Is that what Jesus was telling him? No, he, he was not instructing them how, how justice was to be changed somehow. He was, he was placing the role of responsibility and shifting it, not, not taking, t- taking, telling them what judges ought to do, but what individuals ought to do. So the person who was struck on the one cheek was to personally turn the other cheek. The judge does not turn a blind eye to that. The judge would not act in the same way. Nor was he telling us how we are to act when someone else is being struck, apart from ourselves. We don't say to our wives if someone were to strike them on the cheek, remember, honey, give them the other cheek. That's laughable, isn't it? So clearly, so what is Jesus talking about here? We know, okay, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about judgment should, should be affected. But what he's talking about is our personal our personal responsibility, how we should, the posture we should have towards those who are harming us as individuals. In the case of someone being hit, that person should be willing to give them the other cheek, and the, and the other one who's there should be willing to defend and protect out of love. Because the law always puts love of others above ourselves. It seeks to love even our enemies. But as soon as an enemy approaches the people, the places, or things that we are charged to love and protect, we don't become pacifists. Truth be known, however, this is the sad part, we are far more offended and ticked when our person is hurt than when someone else's is. We're far more aggressive when we're struck than when someone else is. We stand up and fight for ourselves much more quickly than we do for others. All you have to do is remember the schoolyard bully. You ever have a schoolyard bully? You ever, can you think of one? You know the problem there? Is that everybody's afraid to stand up to them. And you know why? Because they're afraid they would get hurt in the process. But maybe one day someone does stand up for the sake of others And they do get hurt in the process. But what they did was the right thing. 
So they stood up and defended and protected and loved those who were getting beaten up and abused. And perhaps they did get hurt, but that's the whole point of love. It's willing to do that for the sake of others. It's willing to suffer for others, even their enemies. So giving people the other cheek, you know, that might be something that's easy to talk about. But I don't know if you've ever been hit before. That's not easy to respond this way. Because everything in you, if you want to know how much you love yourself and want to protect yourself, if you just think about this for a moment. Yeah, well, if your enemy strikes you, and not, this is just any old person. This is an enemy of yours strikes you. What do you have to do personally? He says, you give him the other cheek. And you're going, Pardon? That sounds great and all, Jesus, but um, that probably doesn't happen too much. And in this case, in Israel, it would almost be never happening at this point because they believe, seriously, individually, the law says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so that's what I'm to do personally. They were misunderstanding it completely. But there's more than just giving the other cheek. Jesus goes on in verse 29, the second part of it, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Are you serious? Wow. The one who takes from you, give him more? That's what Jesus is saying. People listening would have thought, what do you mean? Maybe you're listening here and saying, pardon? If someone takes from you, you take it back from them and then expect compensation. Right? That's how we function. And yes, the law did demand restoration and restitution by those who took something. And the judges were to apply that. If you stole from your neighbor, you were to give that back and then add value to it. And so Israel was taking that into their own hands as well. And they were demanding, they were getting, restoring the thing and demanding restitution and um, restoration. But when when it came to how a person was to deal with it personally... They were to act in love and give despite what the other person has done to them. And this is the spirit that was always in the law. This morning was read for us Exodus 23. It says in verses 4 and 5 that if you meet your enemy's, hear that? Your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you don't laugh and say, "That'll, that'll show him. He says, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shouldn't say, oh, treats him right. Hope the thing dies. He says, you shall, ref- you shall refrain from leaving, it with, leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. You're to help him. You're to love him, it says. So the law always intended this kind of love for our enemies or those who hated us. It was the kind of love that that does good and doesn't desire retribution personally. But we have to clarify and distinguish the personal from the communal, just like we did earlier. We have to understand what exactly is Jesus getting at in the details here. The idea here is for us to personally not take offense, to not demand justice, to not seek our rights, but rather to be willing to suffer loss rather than seek retribution. For example, if you were standing in line at a burger joint and you had $10 in your hand and ready to get your own personal burger and someone came up and ripped it out and they took off with it, he 
It's not saying you should run after him, trip the guy, beat him down, and, and take your money back. He's saying no. In that particular case, you say, hey, I've got some more. You want it? But, you know, that, I, that, this is the heart. I read this stuff and think, are you serious? How, I mean, how do you honestly apply this? Are you, is that, does it mean like, hey, dude, I, I've got lots more in my bank, and there's an ATM right over here. Let's go, and I'll give you my tunic also. And, and it, that, does it not seem like that's what he's implying? But here's the thing, and I think it's where we have to understand, again, if we don't get this right, it just gets either confusing, goofy, or we apply it in all the wrong directions. Because whenever it comes to our personal stuff, we have to treat it differently than others. Because if, if you had your grocery budget for the family, and someone grabs it and takes it, what should you do? You should run after them, knock them down, and get it. Why? Because you have a responsibility toward your family. It's not, you have to do that out of defense and protection of the one that God has called you to love. In the same scenario, if it was your own personal money that you've been given and budgeted out, in the, and you have a family, you've got personal spending money, it's your own personal money, and you take the hit, he's saying, take the hit personally. But you don't take the hit for the family or for for people or things that you're charged to protect and defend. And if we don't understand the distinction, we get goofy real fast. Because on the one hand, if we say, oh, if we just utterly dismiss this and say, this is just out of your mind, crazy, what's Jesus talking about? We'd make no personal application whatsoever. On the other hand, if we say, we really, I want to obey Jesus and I'm going to do this, so, okay. Um, he took from he took all our stuff. Now, family, what we have to do is give him the rest. Find something that we can give him. That that's misunderstanding what Jesus is talking about, and that's where we have to discern between personal and communal. Where do my responsibilities lie? Personally, you can do to me these kinds of things, and I'll even give you more. But don't ever hurt, harm, or destroy the things I'm charged to protect. Jesus was passive and mild, wasn't he? Jesus took strikes on the cheek, didn't he? He had his beard pulled out. He got whipped and beaten, and he got... All this stuff happened to him in spades, and he did nothing. But don't you dare turn his father's house into a den of thieves. He takes a cord and a whip... And flips over the money changers and starts whipping a whip around, driving them out. And he said, how dare you turn, he didn't say my place, my house, my father's house into a den of thieves. How dare you do that? This is intended to be a house of prayer. And right there is the most beautiful application of how this works itself out. Jesus personally would take it. But those he's called to protect and defend, he would rise up and give his life for them. And I I tell you, we understand that. It starts to make a little bit more sense. But no more easy. It's still incredibly difficult. Just think of of a police officer. You know, if, if it says here that this is what we're to do and this is just a broad application... 
You know, from the one who takes from your cloak, do not hold your tunic either. If a police officer is on duty, he's charged to defend and protect that community. Now, if he sees someone stealing something, he didn't say, oh, yeah, you forgot something. And, and sees the person being stolen from and says, you need to give him more. Because he's a crazy police officer. He's, he's forgotten his duty. No, 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 I read my Bible. I know what Jesus said. Yeah, and you misunderstood what Jesus said. Because that we, all of a sudden, you look at that and you think, that is just absurd. Who would do that? That, that? that would be the craziest society ever. However, if we lived in a society where personal individuals, their own person, were willing to be taken from and not seek retribution, I'm ta- we're, we've got a pretty beautiful society. And those same individuals are willing to stand up and be hurt themselves for the sake of others and defend and protect others. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to get a good sense of what Jesus is talking about. It's a beautiful thing. But you know what you realize in all of this? How much we love ourselves and how little we love others. We're very quick to defend ourselves. We're very quick to seek retribution for ourselves, but not so quick for others. But if this weren't enough, Jesus goes on in verse 30. He says, give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. To the one who begs from you, give, expecting nothing in return. Now this seems, this has a little bit more of a relevant bite to it. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't been hit in the face too much too, lately. And I haven't had things stolen. So I go through most of my life. The first two, even though they're crazy to think about application, they don't happen on a day-to-day basis, do they? It's not, it's not like, when was the last time that happened? Well, to tell you the truth, it's never happened. But boy, hypothetically, it would sure be difficult if it did happen. This one, on the other hand, we, want, we can see an immediate application. You drive by people begging from you every day. People are asking all, on every corner almost, you've got a sign, please help, give, I need money, I need bread, I need food, whatever it is. So if we're to understand this clearly, we have to understand the cultural context, once again, in which Jesus is saying this. In the culture Jesus was addressing, the people begging were not addicts who just needed to get enough for their next fix. They were people who had no possibility of work and no other means of getting help. They had to beg or they would die. But the Pharisees and many in Israel would pass them by because they thought that they were in that condition because of their sin. They believed that wealth and the prosperity were the signs of God's blessing. And poverty, in the case of someone in a begging situation, was proof of God's cursing. In our culture, it's a little different. I pass by begging people on a daily basis, and probably so do you. So what does this mean in regard to our situation? Well... We can't make a one-for-one because we don't have the same kind of begging people. We have people begging who are looking for a way to feed their addictions and avoid work. We have more in our garbage cans than most Israelites had in their cupboards. You can get a bigger meal outside of most restaurants, just go, you know, in the garbage can. There's just, we have so much stuff. It's a little different. We're in situations that most people, if they are willing to do some work, they can, they can get enough to eat. But we also have to understand that we have situations where most of the people there 
who are, who are begging are not the kind of people who are, who are looking just, this is their last resort, it's all they have and they desperately need it. I mean, I, you can't say 100% every single person, but for the majority of them, they, what they're looking for is to avoid work, to get quick money, to take care of a quick fix. So in our situation, I've, this is how I've often thought and processed it. One of the most loving things I can do is not give them money to support the t- them tearing themselves down and destroying themselves. And that really, is, it really comes down to this question and application. What is the most loving thing to do with people who are on the street around us begging? Because love doesn't give people what they want. It gives them truly what they need. Remember Proverbs where it says to parents, he who hates his son, it's kind of ironic, spares the rod. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. There's an interesting view on love. It's saying the, to the parent, the one who withholds discipline, the one who withholds correction, the one who withholds the rod, that person actually hates their child. Why is that? Because long term, the implications of doing such a thing is you end up with a demon in society who ends up destroying things in themselves. But the one who loves them, disciplines them, corrects them promptly. And so we see that, oh, there it says love. So love actually brings apart, brings discipline, whereas withholding is a form of hate. So it's showing us in the Bible, it's not just as simple as that. Anybody who wants it gets it. But those who need it ought to get it. That's the whole point Jesus is saying here. The people, those who ask of you or beg from you, give to them because they need it. This is what they need. So true love is willing to bring short-term pain for long-term gain. So I think the same kind of wisdom needs to be applied here. Applied in our particular situation, we see people begging on every single corner around us. You shouldn't, take, you shouldn't have every time you go for a 20-minute drive, your wallet is empty. Because if, think of it for a second. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who... Uh, from one who takes from you your goods, do not demand them back. So it's just, it's, the whole mindset is just be one who's just, you walk around and you would be like, basically take a hundred dollar bill or break up a hundred and, and go, go to town. Every time you go out, be prepared to give to everyone because that would be applying it um, very woodenly without understanding the context. And that, so when you look at a person who is truly there and if a person is truly hungry, then we need to feed them. You should be more than glad and joyful to go buy them a meal, to bring them some food if they need it. Joyfully, gladly. I would love to, if you're hungry, I will feed you. Even if, you know, even if what you're doing is completely wrong, I don't care. I would love to help you in this way. But just to go out and disperse money and hand out money to these people, I think is foolish because it's like dispersing, you know, candy to a... To a, to a kid and whose teeth are all rotten and, and one more piece is like, yeah, hope your teeth fall out. Um, it's, it's just not wise. It's not loving. We, we have to understand context and understand where we live in the situation because sometimes we can get confused and, 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 then, and not really apply this the way Jesus had intended it to. Jesus goes on from here, and now what he does in this particular section in verse 32 is he, he does this great comparison. 
And he's saying, and if you don't love in this way, if you don't love like this, then basically you're no different than a sinner. So from 32, he says, if, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And he goes on, and he works through each of the things he's just mentioned. He says, and, if, and if, you, if you don't do this, then you're no different than anybody who's a sinner in the world. Now, I've got to explain something, because before I go any further, we have to know what Jesus is getting at by this word sinner. Because today, we often refer to ourselves as sinners. You'll have to say, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all a sinner, and we're in need of grace, Right? Because we know that Jesus came to save sinners, and we know that we sin. So we use the term to, as, a, as a reference even to us as Christians, and we know what, it, and we, know what we mean by that. So we're, we're able to use the term and be judicious with it and understand what's said. However, in the Bible, a sinner is one who's cut off from God, is not part of God's people, and lives and walks in sin continually. That's how they understood a sinner. For example, look at Psalm, you could look at Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. And later on in that psalm, it goes on, it goes on to say that sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. In Psalm 26, David prays that the Lord would not sweep his soul away with the sinners. <clears throat> in Psalm 104, the psalmist asks that the sinners would be consumed from the earth. In Proverbs 1.10, Solomon instructs his son to not let sinners entice him. And he then says in 13.21 that disaster pursues sinners, while the righteous are rewarded with good. Isaiah 1.28 says that rebels and sinners will be broken, along with those who forsake the Lord. And then in 13.9, he says that the fierce anger of the Lord is going to destroy the sinners from the land. And there's plenty of other passages you look at. How does the Bible view sinners? And then we can go into the New Testament. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, when someone is excommunicated, they're to be treated as tax collectors and sinners. What did he mean by that? Well, clearly, it's a category of people that are outside of God, live and walk in their sin and do not repent. And then here, come back to our passage. Uh, we come back here, and he talks about a category of people. He says, you're no different. If you don't do this, you're no different than those sinners. So how are you to understand that group of people, those who are apart from God, apart from his people, who live and walk in sin? So he's using it differently than we are. We will commonly use it in Christian circles. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he wants his people to understand that if all they do is love those who love them, do good to those who do good to them, lend only to those who lend back to them, then they are no different than those who live and walk in sin continually. Which, I tell you, would have absolutely floored the people he was talking to. They would have said, pardon? You're putting us in this category of people? They would never associate themselves with the sinners. That would be like me comparing you to the prostitutes downtown or to that sketchy crowd of uh, wicked sinners on Capitol Hill. It's, if, if I did that, says, you're, you're no different than them. You'd be going, what? What do you mean? Are you saying that it doesn't matter that we believe in you, Lord God, that we, uh, we attend the temple service, that we've offered sacrifice, that we tithe, that we pray? That we're no different than them? How are you any different? What are you saying, Jesus? 
Jesus said, you're not like your father at all. If you don't do this, you're not like him at all because what your father does, he gives life, breath, food, clothing, shelter to his enemies. He gives sunshine and rain to those who hate him. He does good to them, even those who hate him. He freely gives, expecting nothing in return. He gives and he gives and he gives, and he doesn't even discern. Do you notice that? He says that in Matthew. You notice, you don't, you know, Christians who are following the Lord don't get a rain cloud and sunshine and everything they perfectly need for their individual person. He doesn't discern like that. On the righteous and on the unrighteous, he gives and blesses. Now, this whole section really is a gut kick. Because I don't know about you, but this, this really confronted me and caused me to squirm, caused me to, to wrestle with my own self and my selfishness. And so one of the things we have to do in this section, again, is step back and realize, what is Jesus doing here? Why is he saying this? Is he, is he saying this just so that we can know how to make some moral reforms and do better next time? This is what I believe Jesus is trying to do here. Just like I had mentioned last week. Jesus wants to expose us and break us of ourselves. Jesus wants us to see how rotten we really are. He wants us to feel this, the sense of, man, I, I don't do this. He wants us to see the depth of our selfish depravity. He wants us to see our pride, our self-love, and our self-centeredness. He doesn't want us to sense some little shortcoming in ourselves and think about how can I make now my little moral reform so that I could absolutely apply this. He wants to have us, us to have a true picture of ourselves. When we come to the place where we believe that we're truly, that truly there's no good in us, that we don't have anything to offer to God, and that we would, do, we would not do this for a moment on our own. I, you should read this, and if you don't... If you don't either cry or gut chuckle, you're not understanding what he's saying. If you're reading this and thinking, or another example, maybe another reaction would be that you get angry. How could he, how could he possibly say that? Or we justify it, or we water it down. We do something with it, but what Jesus is trying to do is to get us to see ourselves, what we're really like, and really say, you know what, I really am that selfish The important part is that we see, that you see the evil of your selfishness lurking in your flesh. That you see that your desire to harm those who harm you. That you see how easy it is that you hate those who hate you. That you see how you don't want to turn the other cheek. But you want to smash their cheek. That you don't want to give more to those who've just stolen from you. That you don't want to give everyone who begs of you. That ought to expose our love of self, our lack of love for others and even our enemies. Do you really love your enemies? The scary part is, that, is how good we are at deceiving ourselves. And just to give an example of this, I'm going to tell a story. This story is a little dated. It's quite old. 1931. It's a while back. <laughs> but it illustrates well, it, it, it accentuates the issue and I think 
pulls out the core of the problem. On May 7th, 1931, a little while back, the most sensational manhunt New York City had ever known had come to its climax. After weeks of search, two-gun Crowley, the voracious killer, who, by the way, didn't smoke or drink, was trapped in his lover's apartment on the West End Avenue. 150 policemen and detectives laid siege to his top-floor hideaway. They chopped holes in the roof. They tried to smoke out Crowley, the cop killer, with tear gas. Then they mounted their machine guns on surrounding buildings. And for more than an hour, they heard nothing but the crack of pistol fire and the rat-tat-tat of machine guns. Crowley, crouching behind an overstuffed chair, fired incessantly at the police. 10,000 excited people watched the battle. Nothing like it had ever been seen before on the sidewalks in New York. When Crowley was captured, Police Commissioner E.P. Mulrooney declared that two-gun Desperado was one of the most dangerous criminals ever encountered in the history of New York. He will kill, said the commissioner, at the drop of a feather. In fact, a short time before this, as Crowley was making out with his girl on the country road on Long Island, a policeman walked up to his car and said, May I see your license? Without saying a word, Crowley drew his gun and cut the policeman down with a shower of lead. As the dying officer fell, Crowley leaped out of his car, grabbed the officer's revolver, and fired another bullet into the prostrate body. So the question is, how did two-gun Crowley regard himself? How did he think of himself? We know, because while the police were firing in the apartment, he wrote a letter addressed to whom it may concern. In this letter, Crowley said, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. And as he arrived at Sing Sing Prison after being sentenced to the electric chair, did he say, This is what I get for killing people? No. He said, This is what I get for defending myself. This isn't an anomaly either. Lewis Laws, who was a warden at Sing Sing Prison, said few of the criminals in Sing Sing regard themselves as bad men. They are just as human as you and I. So they rationalize. They explain. They can tell you why they had to crack a safe or be quick on the trigger. Most of them attempt by a form of reasoning, fallacious or logical, to justify their antisocial acts even to themselves consequently stoutly maintaining that they should never have been imprisoned at all. Stoutly maintaining that they were wrongly done, that they really aren't that bad. You could read story after story about the worst villains, and this is why I liked it, the story of the worst villains. Clearly, surely they're going to see themselves as they really are. You know, like, I mean, how do you, how do you mow down all these people, murder and cold blood, all these people, and they... Under here lies a cold, a, a beaten heart. I'm just a weary and tired. I'm really a kind guy. Just got the bad end a few times. That's literally how they talk, how they think. And apart from the Spirit of God giving us eyes to see our true condition, that's how we carry on. We really do not see ourselves like we ought to. It's only as the Spirit allows us to see ourselves before God's glaring righteousness and that we understand, woe is me. Wow. 
humbly broken before God, who's this righteous one, before Jesus, who lived this out in spades. We see ourselves rightly. We're at the proper place. Now we're right where God wants us to be broken and humble and repentant. Because when we're done, to, done with ourselves, we can then turn to Jesus, to righteous Jesus. And the spilling of his blood on the cross, the sprinkling on the altar, the sprinkling on the sanctuary, the sprinkling on the holy place speaks for us on our behalf. And then, only then, only then when we come to that place and we see Jesus and what he's done, we see ourselves for who we really are. And see what Jesus did, that righteous Jesus, the Jesus who did everything in here and more. His blood was spilt and spilt before the Father. And this is something that's really caught me this week. It just like blindsided me because it's like it was powerful. The blood drips of Jesus. Drips just as the blood was sprinkled on the altar and in the holy place, in the most holy place before God. That blood speaks to God. And God sees the blood, and by the blood we are justified and made righteous. Do you realize that when God looks at that, when he sees that blood of his son, his ever-loved son, the son of righteousness, the son who loved him perfectly, the son who loved his enemies perfectly, the son who loved us perfectly, the son who gave himself and withheld nothing, nothing of himself for you and for the world and for his father. That son's blood is before the father. His blood will eternally be before the father in heaven. And the father, he looks at that. And how could he ever condemn anyone after looking at that? Those who come to him. And that blood justifies them. How could you be guilty of anything, of any sin, when the father looks at that blood? He says... You are not guilty. That pays it in spades. Romans 5, 9 puts it, Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The blood of his righteous son. It screams. It screams before every principality, every power, every demon, every, every, everyone in the world, every accuser and even for God himself, that you are innocent. Your debt has been paid. Your unrighteousness is covered by his righteousness. There's not one thing you or I can do to justify ourselves before God. We can't go to Luke 6 and say, I'm going to make some moral reforms. I'm going to change things, and God will really be pleased with me. Go ahead and try. Because if you think that, you need to keep trying for a while until you come to realize, I'm not that good. In fact, it's way worse than I thought. And then you see what Jesus did and why he did it and why that blood was spilt and that blood remains before the Father and declares us righteous. All of a sudden, your world will change. And you know what's amazing? Even beyond that, Jesus did more than just save us um, from sins. He died in his flesh so that the power of sin might be broken. Romans 6, 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So the principle of sin, 
which causes such deep love for ourselves, has been broken. So over and above everything Jesus has done, he does something else. He deals with a, a fundamental root problem in us. is that we, we don't just sin here and there. We actually are sinners. And so the sin, the very principle of sin, and this principle of sin is utterly and overarchingly selfish. It's all about self, about me. And, ha- and, and, and from there come all kinds of sins. That was broken in Christ. We've been crucified with him, died with him, and raised to newness of life, as Romans says. So then what's the problem? Why do, we, why do we still struggle with this? And he goes on. There's more. He says, because you, you walk according to the flesh, but you know what I've done? I haven't just broken the principle of sin. I've given you the spirit of God. So my spirit, I've placed my spirit within you so that I can live out you, out you, through you, and do what I'm calling you to do. As Romans 6, 12, and 13 goes on to say, let, no, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members as God's instruments for righteousness. Which means, now that Jesus has done everything, all that you do is submit to him in everything. Present yourself to God, and God by the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, works out through you, fulfilling what he's calling you to do. God does for you what he calls you to do by the Spirit. Present yourself to God, he says, as those who have been brought from death to life. This means your members, your body, your everything. And as you fully submit yourself and everything you have to God, everything about you, he works in and through you by the Spirit. And only then will you love your enemies. Only then will you come here and be able to do this. This will happen as the Spirit of God works through you. As I said last week, if this comes out of you, if Luke 6 and all the implications of this, if this comes out of your life, it's because the, work, the Spirit is working through you. So this means that your will, your agenda, your timetable, your everything, everything about you must be submitted to Jesus, must be fully surrendered to Him. It's yours, because only then does the Spirit work through you. Because as soon as you decide to do your thing and you have your agenda, your timetable, your, your, your time frame, it's all about you and, you and you and you and you and you. You're walking by the flesh. So we will never love our enemies. We will never do what this, he tells us to do until we understand what Jesus has done for us. And we, by the Spirit, we submit our members, our lives to him, to God, to have his way with us completely in every detail. My life in every square inch is yours, Lord Jesus. Do with me what you will. And watch how he loves his enemies through you. Watch what he does through you. Amen. Amen. Father, we're thankful and we're grateful for the work of Jesus, which is so amazing, which is powerful, which is awesome, which is glorious. We thank you so much that you gave us the Spirit, and in us, you are working. I pray, Father, that each and every one of us would today, even now, present ourselves wholly and completely to you, praising you, giving you thanks for everything you've done for us in Christ Jesus, submitting to you completely, and watching you do your work through us as you love our enemies for us. 
Oh, Father, have mercy and bless us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.